Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. When those sirens would go off, that was a sign for everyone to go into the basements and get bunkers because the city was about to get bombed. Now, when my mom was pregnant with me, that anxiety just transfers from my mom into the into the infant. And even when I was born, that anxiety, that constant fear that the collective society is experiencing, like not knowing what's going to happen, gets downloaded into the individual. So I was born in Iran, you're correct, but it was at a really unique time, which is kind of what's happening technically in Ukraine today. People are probably going through the same exact experience. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have an amazing guest, Parham Nimatoya. Parham grew up in Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, where he lived through frequent bombings that sent his whole family fleeing for safety. They eventually made it to the U.S., but he then spent his childhood moving back and forth from the United States to Iran. At age nine, he moved back to Iran and spent the better part of a year learning how to read and write in a new language. At 16, he moved back to the United States for good, but the constant change caused him to feel outside of both cultures and desperate to fit in by any means necessary. His anxiety, rooted in the early trauma of war and the desire to fit in, caused him to start using alcohol and cocaine to deal with it all. At 25, he overdosed and finally found sobriety while sitting across from his sick mother who happened to be at the same hospital for treatment. He wondered what she did to deserve her sickness and what he was doing to her. Parham eventually went back to school to become a licensed advanced alcohol and drug counselor and holds a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. He is currently the chief operating officer at Buckeye Recovery Network, an outpatient treatment facility he helped create. Parham describes his story as one of an anxious person who couldn't find his place. That could have been the end of the story, but I'm amazed by all the ways that he used his own experiences to help so many others. This is an incredible conversation about what war can do to entire generations of people and how simply the stress of an event, or in this case, the eight years war, but simply the stress of this can transfer into a fetus that that cortisol that's going through and, and has a huge effect on people. And then you layer on top of that, the different cultures wanting to fit in and not knowing where you belong. And it's just a really, really beautiful story. And he is a, an incredible human being. So I feel very blessed that he was willing to come here and share his story. And I hope you are able to get as much out of this as I did. So without further ado, I give you Parham Nimatoya. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Farham, thank you so much for being here. (laughs) You're so welcome. It's really happy to be here. That's for sure. Really exciting. Really exciting. You have an incredible story, so I'm really excited to share So you were born in Iran. 
And you grew up going back and forth between Iran and the United States. That is correct. It was actually a very unique time in Iran. So there's two versions of Iran. One is Iran pre the revolution, which is, was in 1978 and was a wonderful country in terms of, you know, allies with the Western world and people would go there for vacations and heads of the world would gather there. And it was just a wonderful place. And in 1978, there was a Islamic revolution that really altered and shifted the, the whole nature of that country. And our family was one of many families that decided to try to leave during that time. And I was born in 1983. And the reason that's unique is because it was during a time of an eight-year war between Iran and Iraq. So that kind of, uh, it has some significance in my story because I really don't remember this, but my mom shares me these stories that sirens would go off in the city. And when those sirens would go off, that was a sign for everyone to go into the basements and get bunkers because the city was about to get bombed. Now, when my mom was pregnant with me, that anxiety just transfers from my mom into the, into the infant. And even when I was born, that anxiety, that constant fear that the collective society is experiencing, like not knowing what's going to happen, gets downloaded into the individual. So I was born in Iran, you're correct, but it was at a really unique time, which is kind of what's happening technically in Ukraine today. People are probably going through the same exact experience. Yeah. There's a woman in our field. Her name is Dr. Judith Landau, and she started the Arise Intervention. And she tra- she's from South Africa, trains people all over the world. And she did these incredible studies all over the world in war-torn nations. And they look at trauma and prevalence of addiction. And after a large scale event, like a war, a major earthquake, disaster, whatever they can see. And they can they can trace it, not only the parents, but the children. And then they can see the intergenerational trauma, as it's called. And they can show the alcoholism. They can show, like they can literally in this study, show how much that it affects, you know, unborn babies all the way to teenagers through adults. And it's really, really, you know, terrifying and also important to see see how these world events can really shape things like you're talking about with Ukraine, how it's going to shape, you know, the prevalence of addiction that we see going forward. Yeah, hundred percent. And I know that that led to a baseline level of anxiety with me before I knew what anxiety was. I felt like I just had a baseline level of anxiety, but through my story, eventually we moved back and forth between Iran and the United States between the ages of zero to five. I can't even tell you how many times, but eventually at five years old, I landed here and I stayed here till I was nine years old. And that's where I really started to integrate into society, started to become like a little American kid, Saturday morning cartoons, AYSO soccer. You know, I could speak English pretty well. But then when I was nine years old, we moved back to Iran from nine to 16 years old. And that was a significant time in my life because I vividly remember being the smartest kid in the class. And as soon as we went to Iran, I couldn't read and write. I didn't know the language. So I would just sit in classrooms and just completely struggling in all the things that, you know, happen to kids in schools and getting bullied. And, and it was a very challenging time in my life. I started to develop a lot of what what we call resentments towards my father, to life, to society, all that kind of stuff, because I felt like my life was taken away from me. And um, so that was a very unique time. And I, you know, when I came back to high school here, 16 years old, I felt out of place again, because now I'm in a school with 3000 kids and I don't know any of them. And it was just that, that level of anxiety, that baseline level of anxiety that we keep talking about just came and started wrapping around me and just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And that's kind of for me where substances really started to take a hold of me 
because substances and, and primarily it was marijuana at that point and some benzodiazepines that were prescribed to me. But those were the two things that really just helped me breathe for the first time, despite of anxiety. And it was a magical feeling. It was, I never thought I could experience anything like that, that all of those years of just walking this world with so much anxiety got to go away and I got to show up for a little bit and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And that's kind of my introduction to substances and kind of through my history of my life. Why did you go back and forth so much? Why not stay in, or especially when the war broke out and actually, well, the war broke out before you were born, but you were from zero to five, you're going back and forth a lot. Why weren't you staying put in one place? Why the constant moving? So at the time, in real time, I obviously had no idea because one thing with uh, Middle Eastern or Iranian culture, the parents don't really sit down with the children and share with them about what's going on. And this is why we're doing this. It's just kind of adults do and children follow. But looking back now and, and later on having conversations with my family, it was primarily because the immigration process, you can't leave for longer than six months. So you would have to be here for six months and then go back and then be here. And the reason we would go back was because you know my father, and my family had a lot of business over there. So despite of the revolution, there was still a lot of businesses. There was a manufacturing company. There was other family members. There were grandparents. There was just a lot of people there that it was kind of, we couldn't full commit. And that's why the back and forth was happening so much. Yeah. And then at nine, is that when your family got a green card or that that was the, that was the shift? Yeah, I believe we got it a little bit before that. But the reason why this happened... So this is actually very interesting in the story because this is one of the biggest aha moments and change in perspectives I've ever gained in life was at nine when we went back to Iran, I remember that next morning when I woke up, I immediately started having a resentment to my father. I feel like he just ruined my life. I feel like he didn't care about me. Why did he take me to Iran? Why did he do this to me? All that kind of stuff. And I lived with that resentment until I got sober around the age of 24 and a half, 25 years old. I just, every time I drank, every, you know, every time I acted out, every time I left the treatment center, every time I did whatever I did, it was always because don't you know, my dad did this to me. And finally, when I got into the treatment center that stuck with me in June of 2008, my father came to a family group and this is a really profound moment. So he comes to this family group and he's not the kind of guy that participates in family recovery or wants to do any introspective work or share in a public setting. I mean, he's not that guy. Well, it wasn't that guy. He comes to the group and I started to open up about this resentment I had with him my entire life, how much I just despised the fact that he ruined my life. And my dad listened and all of a sudden he started talking. He says, son, when you were nine years old, you know, my son, let me give you a, a background on my dad. My father is the oldest son of a family of five siblings. And all of them were living in the United States. My grandpa did a really wonderful job of sending them all to the United States to get educated and all that kind of stuff. My dad was the oldest son. And my dad in the middle of this family group tells me he got a phone call from Iran that said, my grandpa's not doing well. He's, he's experiencing a little bit of dementia. He's experiencing a little alcohol. Alzheimer and he's alone by himself. He's too prideful to ask for help. And my dad like starts tearing up and crying in this family group. And this is a man with a really, really, really big like ego and kind of, you know, sense of self. He starts tearing up and crying. He said, son, I just wanted to go be with my dad on his last dying years. And that for me, it was like, whoa, my side of the story was my dad's selfish. 
you know, in his side of the story, he was actually selfless. You know, he actually was doing something for someone else that meant a lot to him. And the reason I say this was a shift, profound shift in my perspective. You know, I have a very close relationship with my mom, you know, to this day, very, very close right now in this moment. And I, and I run a company out here and I'm very, you know, I'm doing a lot of good things here right now in this moment. If I had children, which I don't, my mom called me from thousands of miles away and she was in her last days of her life. You bet. Ashley, 1000%, I would get on a plane and go be with my mom right now. And that was like, how dare I judge somebody for something that I would be so easily willing to do in a, in a heartbeat. And that was kind of when I started to learn that the perspectives I've had in life up until that moment, even though they were my perspectives, they weren't the absolute truth. I love that. And I think there's an important piece for parents in here too, which is that you know when you make decisions for your children and their lives... Even if the culture says we don't, you know, you're to be seen and not heard, you're, you know, whatever it is, like you follow. When we as parents make decisions for our children and we give them no context, we give them the only option to create a story around that decision, right? That's the only option for them to do. It's the natural way of things, right? I'm going to try to figure out why it is we're, we're moving back to Iran here. And, and if you give them no explanation, you have to assume that they are going to come up with one. And if that gives you that you lose out as the parent, the opportunity to help them understand things. And I think something that happens in cultures where children are not involved in any sort of dialogue around what what's happening is that you get a lot of those misunderstandings between generations. And one thing that we can do as parents going forward is to help them teach our children to get curious about decisions we don't understand in both directions. Whereas parents get curious about decisions kids are making because your parents could have gotten curious about anger you had. Well, because you ruined my life, that would have been an opener. And you getting curious about decisions that were made for you. And I think if we all got more curious about what was going on for each other while these things were happening or when we're hurt or any of those things, it's likely that we would have more perspective that would allow us to have fewer resentments. 100%. And I think what you just said, Ashley, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, that is the blueprint that helps breaks multi-generational patterns of dysfunctional communication. You know, because I do believe uh, to my core that there's certain things that my father actually didn't know how to do, but that's even okay because that's a start. Because if a family member can own up to the fact that I've never learned how to communicate with, you know, my child about anything, but I want to try, I want to give this a shot. It opens the door for the, for the child to also try. And when people try, good things happen. <laughs> I like that. Yes. <laughs> Very true. So I have several friends who grew up as first generation Americans with uh, Persian parents and have been able to have a front row seat to that, which is a really interesting experience or thing to witness, which is, and I think this happens in a lot of first generation cultures, which is you have these parents who bring their children to the United States to partake in what they believe, you know, they're sacrificing so much, their families, all these things. They come to the United States and in their mind, they're going to have some sort of control over the way that their their kids are being raised. So they don't realize that when you take an Iranian boy born in Iran 
but you bring him and raise him in the United States, he is now American and he is going to have American culture infused in him in a way that they may not like. There's this idea that I see with the the parents where they think that they're going to be able to push away the American things they don't like and keep the culture that they do like from their cultures, right? Because obviously there's something attractive about the American culture to them, but not all of it. And so they there's this adversarial relationship that's created because the first gen wants to be American like it's like their friends, right? They want to fit in. They want it. This is what they know. This is what they want to be a part of. And the parents are like, you are, that's not how we do things or you're pushing away our culture. Our culture is important to America is about the, the combining of cultures. They think they're going to hold on to it more than they actually are. So you <laughs> were not only having that experience, but going back and forth. How does that affect that particular dynamic of, am I American? Am I Iranian? I look this way, but I don't speak the language. I, you know, like how my parents are this way, but they're like, walk me through what's going on in your head these years of confusion about identity. Cause that's such a big piece of so many of our stories are, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And you have that, I mean, just justifiably, right? So tell me more about that part. Yeah. And that's that was really well said. And that is 100% true with uh, the Iranian population. I think it's actually true with a lot of immigrant populations when they come here. The first generation that's from there always wants to uphold and, and keep some of the things that they were brought up with. But it's not a fair comparison because now their children are being developed in a completely different environment and culture. So it's, it's almost impossible to hold the two. But I think with the Iranians specifically, you know, they lost a lot of control. So when a revolution happens in a country, it's safe to say that whatever version of life that they imagined in their minds got effectively blown up and their whole lives got out of their control. So when things go out of control in one's lives, what they like to do is they overcompensate with control because it brings a sense of at least like certainty. But the more you try to control something, the more it becomes out of control. And that's why there are a lot of rebellion. But for me, again, in real time, when I was going through it, it was very uncomfortable. I mean, I know this working as a therapist with individuals that just go school to school in the United States or go from city to city in the United States with kind of the same culture. They have a very hard time adjusting and adapting. So going from country to country, language to language, culture to culture, all that kind of stuff. I remember it was very uncomfortable, very challenging. But then again, the resiliency that children have always blows me away. And the fact that I was able to adjust and adapt to those environments. For example, when I would go to Iran, I became like overly whatever the Iranian standard was. So whether they're doing what they're doing religious studies, I was like the most religious kid. They were doing, you know, physics and science. I was the most you know, just the book, book warm, whatever I could do to just fit in. And that's kind of the, the foundation of actually, believe it or not, low self-esteem in which led to people pleasing, which ultimately leads to a lot of my substance and behavior issues, the people pleasing, low self-worth, because it wasn't really reinforced by, you know, family and society and the whole chameleon that we talk about or hear about in the rooms that I would just be whatever you wanted me to be. And, you know, towards the end of my drug addiction, this is, I'm fast forwarding a little bit here, but just to show you how much that impacted me, I had no idea who I was, right? Like literally I had no idea who I was. Towards the end of my substance use, I was abusing and using a lot of cocaine. And I legitimately thought 
that my name was Pete instead of Parham and I was from New York. So I would just say I'm Petey from New York. I'm like an Italian mobster guy. My favorite teams were the Giants, the Yankees, the Knicks. My favorite movies was the Goodfellas. And I was obsessed with thinking that I'm an Italian mobster when I was just an insecure Persian guy. That range that I'm talking about there to go and transform into something that I'm not was a byproduct of this whole moving and never having roots. You know, I was never attached to anything. I never developed psychological, emotional, spiritual roots anywhere. It was kind of just always being uh, moved around. And, and that has a toll on children. You know, it has a toll toll on the human development over the lifespan. And that's a perfect recipe for things like codependency. It's a perfect recipe for things like destructive behavior. I had a lot of uh, problems with anabolic steroids and, and just kind of trying to be someone that I wasn't. I do believe it was related to a lot of that moving. What are some of the, for, for those of us who, you know, I know um, I actually studied international relations of the Middle East as my major in college, <laughs> which in retrospect, I'm not sure what you do with that, but that's neither here nor there. So as someone who I have a little background, but but I on a deeper level, what is the culture around addiction, mental health, alcoholism, drugs in Middle East? And you can, I know it'll be a little bit different from place to place, right? As particular city to city, but Middle Eastern culture and maybe specifically Iran. Sure. So alcohol in general in the Middle Eastern culture and Iran is actually illegal. So I'm talking about to the point that if you get caught with alcohol, you can be punished legally. You can go to, to, to prison, you can go to jail. So there are some alcohol bootleggers. I remember our family had one. The guy would come in a little motorcycle. On the back of his motorcycle, he had a little cooler and he'd come inside your house and he'd bring out a bottle of Johnny Walker, something like that, that my parents would buy. But it was fully illegal. But uh, opioid uh, drugs, so we're talking about the hashish, we're talking about opium, and we're talking about heroin, is very, very, very easily found because Iran borders Afghanistan. And you know, a gram of heroin is much cheaper than a pack of imported cigarettes in Iran. And Iran, actually, this is a very sad statistic, but it has the most addicts per popula in the world, opiate addicts per popula in the world. That breaks my heart because the people there are so wonderful and so intelligent and so loving, but there's a lot of collective pain in that country. And all you can do is trace pain and trauma to addictions. But the beauty of this is uh, that most people don't know this. Iran also has the most NA meetings in the entire world. So 3,500 NA meetings in the bigger you know, capital of Tehran per month. And when they have their convention, their NA convention, the 100,000 person stadium of, it's called Stadium Azadi. The 100,000 stadium fills up two times with people in the span of one day. And they all do the serenity prayer in Farsi while holding hands. And it can give you goosebumps just thinking about what that would sound like. But recovery is actually alive and well in Iran. It's only through a Narcotics Anonymous. So it's not Alcoholics Anonymous. It doesn't exist, actually. Alcoholics Anonymous is like underground. It's like really, it's a taboo to even you know say you go to, but Narcotics Anonymous and also all the family groups. So like Naranon, Naratine, like all that kind of stuff is alive and well in Iran. They are gender specific though. So male and females don't program together. Interesting. I bet that saves them some headache. Oh, for um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about why alcohol, like why is it that alcohol is seen as being different? Why is Alcoholics Anonymous and alcohol, like why is that taboo? How is that different? Religious doctrine. So it goes back to the Quran. It's shunned on in that book. So therefore they use the rule of uh, the rule of the law over there pretty much is the religious law. That was the whole Islamic revolution. So in families in general, there's a lot of shame. So let's talk about the cultural component. There's a lot of shame about addiction for the ones that aren't educated yet. They feel like they failed as parents. 
they feel like that they failed as uh, teaching the right things or the right decisions or whatever you want to call it, like the choice theory. And it's also, you know, in Iran, you always want to put your best face forward. So if, you, if I'm struggling inside and, and Ashley, you tell me how you're doing today. If I'm dying inside, I say, I'm doing great. You know, and I smile and I say, I'm doing great. And that, that fake facade, that fake mask, it happens in social gatherings. So when someone asks you how your kid's doing, you're not going to say my son's struggling, my daughter's struggling. Oh, they're doing great. They're getting ready to go to university. You know, when, when in reality, you know that they're, they've been using heroin intravenously for the past two years, but no one will ever own up to it or admit it. And so it's very just kept in the dark. Nothing good grows in the dark. We'll call it that. When you were in high school, there was another element where your mom got sick. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece? Yeah. So that was back in the United States now. So my mom is the staple. You know, I call her the hero of the whole story. She's been with me through all the ups and downs and moving. When we moved to Iran, I know she didn't want to go there really because Iran is post-revolution. It's oppressed for females. She's got to wear the hijab and all that stuff. And she's not like that. She's much more Western. So she was with me. And when we came back to the US, my dad actually stayed in Iran to keep taking care of my grandpa. So it was just me and my mom. And I have an older brother too. And my mom, she got diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was, I believe, uh, stage three breast cancer, but it was still treatable, but it was through chemo radiation. And she was at Hoke hospital for a lot of days. And my mom's got long blonde hair and, you know, she lost all her hair and all that stuff. And I remember when I heard about the diagnosis, I was just terrified. I was really scared because I didn't know if I lost my mom, then what would be left over. And I couldn't go to the hospital to visit her. I mean, I would go there. I'd sit behind the door. I'd go sit in the car, but I couldn't go inside to see her. And and it was just too painful. And that's where I call, I crossed the line of substance use. So up until that moment, I was using alcohol. I was using, you know, marijuana. I was using some prescription Xanax medication, but then I just didn't care from that moment on. And I remember when my mom came home from the hospital, she got sent home with a lot of Oxycontin pills. She couldn't take them. My mom can't take any opiates. She gets nauseous and throws up, whether it's a small Vicodin or whatever, she can't handle it. And I remember she got home, she got sent home with a pharmacy and I just started taking the pills and taking the pills and taking the pills. And that was the first time I ever got strung out in high school. And I I didn't know what was happening because I was taking all these other pills and nothing was happening to me, but these pills were different. And I got strung out to the point that I needed help. And uh, my family doesn't know what the heck's going on because they they didn't even think I'd be interested in the pills, let alone taking 90 Oxycontin uh, pills from her. And it was just a lot of emotional pain. Now, to be honest, I was just scared. And uh, it was a big, you know, and I want to say this, my mom is uh, healthy and okay today, you know, despite of all that. But that was kind of the first time that I realized that I I'm using substances to deal with emotions beyond anxiety. So before that, it was always anxiety, but now it was because of pain. It was because of sadness. It was because of depression. You know, it just started to any feeling you can imagine. I was using substances to cope with it. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community. And I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who struggle with anger or are deep in their grief, and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community no matter where they are in life, 
and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lionrock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it for yourself for one month free. And now back to the show. It's not an accident that opiates are painkillers, right? And and so when we use opiates and we don't have pain, there is a numbing, there is a, a you know sedative effect, and that is on purpose, you know. And I think that it's clear as you start to use this, like you are, you're ingesting for emotional pain. And the truth is that that's real too. It's just we don't have the skills to manage that. And if we aren't taught how to manage that by someone, we're going to seek some sort of relief. And I think that's the big, I think that's one of the big pieces. I know you know this as a therapist, we need relief. Relief is part of it. It's not bad to want relief. It's what we use for relief. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you use the word pain and use the word relief. It reminds me of the, someone that I just, I love and adore. And I'm sure you're familiar with his work, but with Gaber Mate, have you heard of him? Mm -hmm. So he says, and I'm quoting him, so this is not me, but he says, it is impossible to understand addictions without first finding out what the person finds or hopes to find from the drink, the drug, or the addictive behavior. And for me, that was, I was just hoping to find that relief. It really was. I was hoping to get that warm kind of hug that I wanted, but I couldn't get from those opioids. And I didn't know it in real time though. That's the whole thing. You know, people, we don't know these things in real time until you look back later on and say, that's what I was doing or what I was trying to get. And I do believe that emotional pain and physical pain are this. Actually, I think the brain can't tell the difference between the two. So if, if I'm walking around with a broken wrist, the receptors in my brain light up in a certain way. And if I'm walking around with a broken heart, the receptors in the brain light up the same way. And that's why people drink their sorrows away. You know, that's why people use to numb themselves. So that was a big moment because, and when I say I crossed the line from that moment on, I was unable to go back to the using that was just allowing me to kind of be now my using started to become reckless. I started to, it started changing my character, you know, started changing the way I uh, lived my life, how I lived my life, who I live my life with. And it just started to escalate and kind of like a fuel on a fire that was already going, but it just got to wildfire sizes in a short period of time. So I think right around there, I graduated high school about 20 years old. I dropped out of community college, you know, and I didn't go back to school till I was got sober. And those four or five years in between were just were painful. You know, I did things I wish I didn't do, you know, those regrets. I said things I wish I didn't say. I took things I wish I didn't take. And it got to the point that my mom that loves me more than anyone else in this world set boundaries with me. I think she got exposed to some family therapy. She put some boundaries with me and said, I don't know who you are, but you can't be around me the way you are anymore. And you know what? I just said, okay, then if you don't love me, that's okay. And I just, I kept going deeper and deeper and deeper into the addiction uh, for those four or five years. And, and it was tough. Those were the most challenging years of my life, even more challenging than those years of moving back and forth with Iran because I was where I wanted to be. I had the... Interesting, the, yeah. Yeah, I had all the... You know, I was just... It was more, it was scarier. It was darker. It was scarier. It was just a really painful time in life. Those between 20 and 24. Can we just stop for a second and yeah. um, talk about the fact that you thought you were Italian and convinced other people you were Italian? <laughs> oh, they believed it. And yeah. from New York, but you weren't even... Can you tell me a little... Can we like... I want to sure. know about that. 
Well, cocaine is a powerful drug. Cocaine <laughs> is a hell of a drug. And I was snorting cocaine like it was the 1980s. Uh, and I would, I would just do so much cocaine and I would lose concept of reality. I mean, I really would. And I, like I said, I used to be on a lot of steroids and I used to wear bandanas and I used to wear jerseys like Nick's jerseys. And I would go out to clubs and bars and stuff like that and just totally be a New York guy. You know, I had the whole accent down, all that kind of stuff. The only so problem you, was... Yeah. You like legitimately were like, it wasn't like I, I'm going to act Italian. I'm going to like the, <laughs> the, the New York teams. It was like, no, I'm from, like you were the words I'm from New York. And my oh, name from is New York. Pete. I'm from New York. PD, yeah. From New York. And the problem was it was all good and dandy when you're, when you're dealing with drunk people from Newport beach, it's all good to go. You know, right, there's right, no right, problem right, right. until you meet the one that's from New York. Well, that's you know? what I was. Okay. So that was my next, like, tell me what happens when you meet, well, Johnny so is, from yeah, York. the Johnny from New York. It was well. This is so. This is like 2006, 2007. Smartphones weren't as smart as they are right now either. Right, right, you know? right, right. So people just couldn't pull up anything that you wanted on information. I mean, MySpace was the thing back there, and I can make my MySpace very Italian if I wanted to. But long story. <laughs> Long story short, sometimes I get called out and I feel like a, you know, just a, but I was, I mean, who was I? I was a person with no self-esteem. I didn't care. I'd never see that person again. And sometimes it would happen. You know, your, your fraud, your con would get, would get turned up. And, well, what and that about was just a part of it. Uh, well, those, so here's what happens. And you know, this actually. Our, it's been so long since I put on a different person. It's been so no, long since I was a chola. No. Yeah. Well, here's, here, here's what happens. So the people that knew me at some point around 20, 21 years old, they didn't know what I had become. And they I couldn't tolerate what I'd become. So what I had to do was I say, okay, well, I don't need you guys anymore. And that was a lot of good friends I had from Elisa. I don't need you guys anymore. And I started to find myself lower levels of companions. And I'm talking about guys, girls that were just doing things that I never thought I'd be in the same room with. And to them, it wasn't any different. You know, to them, I was just some random guy that they're using and, and partying with. So my, I guess my circle completely changed. Yeah. It just completely changed. Had you ever been to New York? I'd been to New York. Yeah. Okay. I'd okay. So there's, yeah. <laughs> I'd been in New York. And every time the, the Yanks or the Knicks or the, or, you know, they would come out here, the Giants, I would go to the game. So I was like full commit to those too. Okay. Okay. But it was, um, it was interesting. Honestly, it was just cocaine. It, you just lose sense of who you are. You really do. <laughs> I love it. It's, it was just cocaine. It was just yeah. cocaine. Cocaine, man. It's a hell of a... It, cocaine's an amazing, amazing thing because for me, you're doing all the other stuff first, right? The And I hated smoking. I smoked a lot of weed, but I hated smoking weed. And I think that was part of what the allure of cocaine. But cocaine is one of the few drugs where I really thought I like I was okay longer than I was. Like when I was shooting heroin, I was kind of aware that things weren't going well. Like I not as aware as I should have been, but whatever. And when I was taking like gnarly pills or whatever, like we would fill up these like jewelry boxes of pills from Mexico and just like, I like blue, I like red, you know, and just kind of, you know, I knew like it was possible I was going to die. But with cocaine, there was a lot of like, we're still partying. This is glamorous. This is fun. This is fine. It's just a little, it's short. It doesn't last very long. It, you can control it. It's, you know, like, I feel like that was the most deceptive substance that I've ever experienced in terms of like 
addiction. It was the most insidious, even more than alcohol for me. Yeah, it was all consuming. It really was all I thought about. I mean, I'm talking about 24 seven. It's all I thought about. When am I going to do it? How am I going to get it? Where am I going to do it? And, you know, I also, like I said, I also abused anabolic steroids during yeah, that, that same time. Next... And At the ste- same time as cocaine. Same time as cocaine. Oh and, and, man, and al- you must have been a fucking mess. Oh, I was, I was a mess. And alcohol too. So like alcohol and cocaine together, they make another chemical called coca ethylene. It's seven times more toxic to the lever, seven times more addicting. That's why when people who use seven cocaine... Seven times better as, as well. Oh uh, yeah. So as soon as people <laughs> drink the ones that do cocaine, all of a sudden, all they think about is getting cocaine. I mean, it's like a powerful shift. Oh, it's like it literally, it's like coffee and cigarettes. You just like, it's like, you don't even need to want coffee, but if you smoke a cigarette, you're going to like, that's it. It's just, it's peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. So, I mean, that whole pursuit and then the, the steroids by themselves are very psychoactive too. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people don't know that it could put you in states of, of, of mania states, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So it's just a perfect storm for insanity. And I was Boy, insane. That's a perfect storm for a huge ego. hundred percent. Like a huge, like crazy. Were you just angry and crazy? <laughs> I would get angry and crazy. And I would also get very emotional and, and, and cry yeah, on the flip yeah. side. Right, right. Yes, I've seen some people where I was like, and I am more afraid of what's happening now than I was when you were angry. Yeah. Um, so I did look like an Italian mobster from New York. You know, yeah, that yeah, I will. Yeah, I did. Fair. I did play the part. I did. I did pass the part. I appreciate your commitment to it, too. For sure. Yeah, it was short lived. It was only for like about a couple of years of my life, but that was about it. So if I'm rewriting the story, just FYI, you were a method actor. Okay, there, there we go. go. I That's really very committed to that role. You were yeah. so good. You were waiting for your big break. You didn't know when it was coming, but when they called, you were ready. But I'll tell you this, when I actually had to go make some amends when I got clean and sober, and I had to actually own up to the fact that to certain people that I lied about this component of my life. But it, I always said, and say, hey guys, I, w- I never was an Italian mobster from New York. I was always an insecure boy from Iran. So that's what I would say. And I would just talk about how that whole journey played out. It was sometimes embarrassing and very humbling. It's the exact opposite of the alcohol, cocaine, and steroid combo. <laughs> it's like the your head between your leg and just kind of that kind of stuff. But but it was it's a part of my story and that's okay. You know, that's okay. Yeah. Can you take me to introduction to recovery and then what gets you over that, you know, over that hump into actual abstinence and recovery. Yeah. So this is, again, this is, goes back from like maybe 2006, 2007, 2008, the treatment space was a little bit different. So it was less to do with the insurances and all the different treatment centers that exist right now. Back then it was more private pay and it was just smaller, you know, detox residentials. So I got exposed to one of those kind of cash parents were able to get me into one, but I was there by complete external motivation. I did not want to go there. It was just because I dropped out of college. They thought something's wrong with me. I'm strung out on drugs. They just say, get a tune up and go back. And then from that point on, it was a lot of, to be honest, psychiatrists, psychologists, outpatients, and just kind of doing that whole realm until eventually got to the point. So there's a couple of treatment centers there in between and a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists and specialists. And then from that point on, I was like, you know what? This whole thing is, it's California. This is the problem here is not me. It's California. I need to get out of here. So I decided, and I was living in Newport Beach at the time, I decided to go from Newport Beach to Carbondale, Illinois. And Carbondale, Illinois is a little town in Southern Illinois, six hours south of Chicago. 
It's seven miles long. And I have a cousin there that from Iran just decided to move to Carbondale for some reason, but he moved to Carbondale. So he's lived there his whole life. Yeah. Just through a dart. And he owns the two subways in the town. So like seven miles, if there's two subways, he's the king of like Carbondale. Sandwiches. Yeah. Two subway yeah, okay. sandwich. Huh? Okay. So people are, I mean, he's just balling out there. He's doing really yeah, yeah. well. It's like, so what, you there. want turkey? I got turkey. <laughs> I mean, everybody eats subway there. So I go to his house and he's a healthy guy. He's one of those like healthy fit guys that doesn't drink, but he's not a program guy, but he's just a healthy guy. As soon as I go to his house and I'll never forget this. The first night I say, Hey, let me go out. I'm not going to do any drugs or anything, but let me go out. And I went somewhere and I got a vodka pineapple and I got a vodka pineapple. And eventually I asked the girl who was serving them if she knows anybody that has cocaine. And I kid you not in about two hours, I was surrounded by a table that was exactly the same table I just left of people, places, and things. They just spoke with a Midwest accent because later on I found out everywhere you go, there you are. So I took myself with me in all of the ways that I thought and my resentments and my processes and my low self-esteem. I took it with me to Carbondale, Illinois. And that was a great place to be an Italian mobster, by the way, because now the whole story, the, the plot really thickened over there in Carbondale. People Wait, were didn't really- your cousin out you? No, no, he just, he had no, yeah, I was such a mess. I mean, it was like, I was really, really out there, you know, and, uh, he's like, and he's, he was working, he was, he was working all the time and it was a college town and there was a lot of bars and long story short, four months in Carbondale. And I called my mom, which had serious boundaries with me at this point. The boundary was, if you ever call me, it has to be to get help. It can't be for anything else. So I said, well, I want to get some help and I want to go to treatment. She got me on a plane back to California. I didn't go to treatment. I just used her for the plane ride. And my friend picked me up and I went on another two month run. And this takes me to right about June of 2008. And then my brother calls me one day and he says, Hey man, just so you know, mom's cancer is back. And I want you to know that you're the reason because of it. And he says, she doesn't sleep at night anymore. She's always messed up. She's always crying. She's sick and you're the fault of it. And like, at first I was kind of offended. I was like, how dare he tell me that? But I decided to go get help because my mom was in a bad situation again. It was again, external motivation. So that night I go to that day, I go to a treatment center. That's the one that's stuck. And I'll talk about him in a second. And the counselor there had the biggest impact I've ever had anyone make on me in my life. It's an Iranian man. And I was able to sit there and tell him about my addiction, my behavior, my processes, the things I'm screwing up in life, my shortcomings. And it was the first time that an Iranian man older than me was able to just listen to me without telling me what I'm doing is wrong, without telling me I'm stupid, without you know judging me or blaming me or faulting me. And he's like, oh, you did all those. And he threw like 10 more experiences that he did when he was out there too as a sober guy. And I'd never met a sober Iranian man. That was the first time in my life or one that was openly talking about it. And I left. He's like, well, I need you to check in right now because you're taking some substances that you need to go to detox for. And I said, yeah, I'll come in, but I'll come back tomorrow because alcoholics and drug addicts, they're the busiest people in the world with nothing to do. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, had no, I really had nothing to do, but I said, I'll come back tomorrow. And I went and told my buddies, I'm like, yo, I'm going to rehab tomorrow. And, and I actually ended up overdosing that night on a combination of medications. And we had these oxy eighties back then and benzodiazepines and alcohol cooking, all that kind of stuff. But the oxy 80 with no oxy tolerance was the one that kind of hospitalized me. And the next morning, this is where it becomes powerful. So despite of all those different treatment centers and, and geographics and all that kind of stuff and psychiatrists, psychologists, I'm in the hospital room and I wake up on June 13th, 2008. And my mom is in there. And the interesting part is she wasn't there because of, you know, because of my overdose, she was there because she happened to be at the same hospital doing her own cancer treatment. 
I could just see she was sleeping in the visitor's chair and her eyes were all puffy. She just looked like she was 10 years older, 20 years older. And I just looked at her and I said, like, what am I doing to this person? What did she ever do? Like, what, what did she do? How did she sign up for this? That like, you know, my whole life is just going to get devastated by this kid. And in that moment, I made a decision that I said, I'm honestly going to just try this literally for her. And then hopefully I, I figure it out for me. But it was a different type of attempt of this. You know, it was just that moment of seeing her face. And there's a quote that I share often. I don't even know who it's from, but it's not from me. It says, I just have to say it's not mine. So I don't sound like it's mine. <laughs> but it says when suffering loses its value, healing becomes instantaneous. In that moment, when I saw my mom's face like that, all the suffering that I had in my life that I was carrying for all those years it lost its value compared to what she was experiencing in that moment. And the healing process becomes instantaneous. So like when I went to rehab, I went to rehab that same day I got from that hospital, I went straight to rehab. It was just a complete different outlook. You know, the suffering I had in my life just didn't have its value, but now I needed to get rid of all the stuff I've been holding on to. And that's where I needed the help on how do you let go of things that you've been carrying for years and years and years and years. So yeah, that's my kind of treatment history, if you will. And from that moment on, my parents, every Wednesday, there's a family group there. And to this day, we're talking about 13, 14 years later, they both go and participate and they participate in the family support. My mom's like a pillar in the Iranian Al-Anon and CODA meetings and all that kind of stuff. So they found their own recovery. Both my mom and dad are both transformed. Like as much transformation I've had in the recovery process of myself, I think they've had more transformation in their recovery. And that's to say a lot because I, I've changed a lot, but they've changed even more, I believe. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. You decided to go and go to school to become a therapist and you're now a therapist and and you work in the recovery space. What are the types of ways that you are able to talk to Middle Eastern families about recovery that are unique and that break through some of the cultural stigmas? So yeah, so I, I first became a drug and alcohol counselor. And the main motivating factor for that was that same gentleman. When I left his office the first day before my overdose, even before I started the recovery process, I promised myself that one day I'm going to make another human being feel the way this man made me feel. And I signed up for drug and alcohol counseling classes at Saddleback. And I finished that program. And then I got my bachelor's in human services. And then I got my master's in marriage and family therapy. So I went to school nonstop through that process. But the, the thing that I would tell not just Iranian parents, I think with anybody is to realize that their experience is not yours. And in, in to truly understand someone else's experience, you have to sit and listen to see what they're going through. Because a lot of people project their own upbringing and they project their own experience thinking that everybody else is the same way. Because I was a teenager at one point, I was a young adult at one point. Yeah, but it was a completely different situation. So it's just to be able to listen to each other a little bit better. And also I'm big on breaking the stigma of addiction. I'm really uh, big on trauma and trauma-informed care. And I do a lot of psychoeducations when it comes to trauma and how it impacts the brain, how it impacts social development, how it impacts our decision-making, our, our addictive behaviors, all that kind of stuff. So I'm big on psychoeducation and teaching and creating it, making it an, uh, interactive because I do believe that people without the proper information and knowledge, they're not informed. People that aren't informed can't make proper decisions. How do you describe addiction to families who don't understand it? Like I said, I'm almost like a Gabor Mate disciple. So I figure that he's made such a profound impact on my life. And it's so easy to understand that I quote him and use a lot of his stuff. So when it comes to addiction, I always say not why the addiction, but why the pain to get to the roots of the pain is to find out what an individual is hoping to find from their drug or drink or addictive behavior. So if someone can't fall asleep at night, if somebody has a hard time quieting their mind, if somebody has a hard time feeling like they need to be loved, well, why can't they fall? 
fall asleep at night? Why can't they quiet their night and uh, their head at night? Why do they feel that their self-esteem is so low that they need validation to be loved? And finding the roots of all these things, because I do believe that when you get to the root, it starts to really collectively heal the individual and the family system. Because whatever those symptomologies are, they're not related to just the individual. If the person can't sleep at night or quiet their mind, then maybe the environment is too loud. Maybe there's people fighting inside the home. Maybe there's people leaving inside the home. Maybe there's people absent inside the home and they're left within their own thoughts. So I'm a big believer of just getting to the root of all of the the pain, the root of the pain. And that's most people can identify with that because when you say someone's a drug addict or an alcoholic, all of a sudden you're saying that person is different than you. When I truly believe that all people actually, we have a lot of commonalities and similarities. People that use substances just cope with those emotional dysregulations with the substance. With people that don't, man, they can do it with shopping. They can do it with eating. They can do it with sex. They can do it with food. They can do it with gambling. But the stigma that comes with the addict alcoholic is like, they're wrong because they're using a substance, but I'm okay because I'm 17 credit cards in debt and my cholesterol is through the roof and I have, you know, I'm pre-diabetic because I, I cope with the way I eat my food. So it's just kind of allowing the similarities to be seen and compassion. It's only when compassion is present, do people allow themselves to see the truth. And that's by, it's by a gentleman, he's an Egyptian philosopher, but it's only when compassion is present, do people allow themselves to see the truth. So I always invite family members to look at their loved one, to listen to their loved one through the lens of compassion. Because if you do so, the truth that they're trying to express or articulate, or they don't have the words to say it, and you only see it in their behavior, the truth will actually be seen and heard and felt. And that's really what the individual is always trying to communicate anyways. What are you seeing as we move into this phase of the world where fentanyl is going crazy and kids who are just experimenting in the way that we experimented are now in mortal danger. First of all, it breaks my heart. It scares the living heck out of me. What have we done wrong with the way that we communicate with each other, the way we love each other, the way we support each other? I don't know how open the station is with it, but with the opioid pandemic or that's been going on for longer than the COVID pandemic, actually, opioid pandemic has been going on longer. You can call it epidemic, but I, I think it's pretty much turning into a worldwide thing. There are harm reduction methods, you know, that can be used for opioid addiction that I am a believer of. I, what I am do you a, like uh, in regards to Suboxone and, and those kind of medications? Yeah. yeah. What's your what's your view on how we can help people not die? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, my view is anything that we can do to preserve life and provide the opportunity for an individual to seek and find recovery, whatever that looks like for them at a time in their life when they might be more fragile, they might be a young adult, they might be an adolescent where they don't have the ability to rationally problem solve, think, come up with conclusions, look at consequences. If we can support that individual to be able to sustain life and not die, then that is a very important step we need to take in harm reduction and, and treating individuals. You know, there's a stat here, Ashley. Right now, last year, I think it was 100,000 people died from overdoses. Back in 2018 and 2019, there was these two Boeing jets that went up in the air and they crashed. And when the first one crashed, they said, oh my gosh, this Boeing Max jet 737 just crashed. And then another one went up in a crash. And then the following day, they grounded every single Boeing jet that ever gone up, right? They just said, and they, and they kept them grounded, by the way, for a year and a half. So yeah, so they kept them grounded because they said, until we find out what is going on here, we can't have passengers fly on these. Now, if you look at that 70,000 number, not even the 100,000 number, and you divide that by days of the year, every single day, a Boeing jet full of opioid addicts goes up in the air, it comes down and it crashes, and all of the souls of that plane die every single day, by the way. And day after day, 
and nobody does anything about it. All they want to do is guess what? They want to blame the passengers on the jet. And that's the way society thinks, by the way. They don't think macro level holistic. They're just looking, oh, well, they used, it was their choice. They died. They want to blame the passengers on the jet. And so I just say, hey, if these passengers are getting on this jet, let's just do anything we can to keep these people safe, you know, because it's a bigger problem. It's a macro problem. It's not a micro problem for sure. Yeah, it's it's important for people to know that there are lots of options. And we do talk about on this show all the different options for treatments, for things, because we want to keep people alive long enough to be able to make whatever decision they want. You know, they may start out on Suboxone and that may get them sober long enough to save them. So now they don't want to be on. It. it may, you know, we're, we're buying time here because it's such a life and death thing. We, we need to buy time. And I want people to know that actually there is a message of hope for that one too, because I call it the pathway to abstinence and it's not for everybody, but there, I know many people through our own program that have been able to go through medication assisted treatment and they were able to get their life a little bit to a more manageable place, start liking their selves, start liking the reflection they see in the mirror, start to have a little bit more sense of respect and self-worth. And eventually at some point they say, Hey, if I wanted to get off this, how do I get off this? And they're successfully able to titrate and get off the medication, whether that's two years down the line, but they're able to. But so many people say, well, if they come in, they're going to be addicted for something else for the rest of their life. Well, maybe, but maybe not. At least they have a chance to make that decision for having a life to be able to make a decision about. So there is a stigma that comes with that, which I'm sure is widely reported. And hopefully it's starting to change a little bit now because we need something to change because society and our drug use has changed. Absolutely. What are the first two steps that you tell any person seeking to get into any kind of recovery? They are just realizing they have a problem. What are the first two steps you would give someone? Get some support that's uh, professional. So find out somebody that you can professionally talk to, to be able to get what I like to call an unbiased, objective point of view of what you're going through. And the second one is, is why. It's honestly, it's, it's why you want to do this. If you can't find out the why of this, the rest of it's not going to make any sense. But when you can find out the why, why do I want to get off drugs? Why do I want to uh, make this change in my life? Why do I want to work on my anxiety, my depression? Without that why, the recovery process is almost impossible. So I'm not saying you have to have that why immediately, but get to work and start thinking about that why. The sooner that why becomes crystal clear, the easier the how of recovery becomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. What I always tell people and and parents is this is too hard on a day-to-day basis, just period, end of story to not have a deep desire to want to change. If you have a surface level, if you, if this isn't life or death to you, if you don't really, really want to change, you won't because it's, you can have it, you can sustain it for a period of time, but day in, day out, year in, year out, it's too hard. It's too hard to sustain it. It has to be, you have to create that internal motivation. Yeah, 100%. Where can people find you, reach out to you if they have questions or interested in talking to you more? Sure. So uh, my day job is uh, I am one of the owners and the operating partner of Buckeye Recovery Network. And we're an intensive outpatient substance abuse mental health facility in Huntington Beach, California. So I'm there on a daily basis. And that's kind of uh, what I do. I'm available there, parum at buckeyerecoverynetwork.com. And it's kind of been there for nine years now. I love the place and I love the people and the work we do there. And it's a pretty saturated and, and 
overly kind of competitive place in tr- to have a treatment facility. But I believe if you do the the proper fundamentals of why we're doing it, what's our why as an organization, then then the rest takes care of itself. So it's just a place that I love and adore, and I love the people there too. Awesome, cool. Well, we'll put that information in the show sure. notes for anybody who's interested in reaching out to you. And super, super grateful for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Ashley. Love being here. Thank you for all you do, by the way. It's a like I, I think I shared with you one time on in passing in a in a Facebook message somewhere. But keep doing what you're doing. The world needs more of it. Even if there's a lot of podcasts on mental health, I still argue that there isn't enough. So keep shining. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed Parham. It was a great conversation. I think he has a lot of wisdom that hopefully will help you and your loved ones on your journey. My favorite, my favorite for sure is the uh, Italian gangster from New York. I really wish that I could have met that guy. He seems awesome. Oh my God. And he's not even Italian. He's Iranian, nor is he from New York. I think it's absolutely hilarious. My only regret from this episode is that we didn't have him like do the boys. The impression. I agree. I agree. We really draw. I I dropped the ball there. I dropped the ball. I'll own it. Sometimes I think that's what these outros are going to be is us just kind of doing a little mea culpa, you know, like just we we kind of blew it, you know, there. And we're sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. As we need hard hitting journalists. We'll yes. do better next time. We'll do guys. better. We yep. swear. Scouts honor. Ashley, what's yes. this lionrock.life thing? What? what? Lionrock.life is a community of people defining their recovery in whatever way works for them. So a lot of freedom around what your recovery looks like. It's a support network, over 70 different support meetings a week run by peer counselors, licensed master's therapists, meditation teachers, workshops, you name it, all recovery-based. It's incredible. And we are offering one month free using discount code COURAGE. So go to lionrock.life on your computer or tablet or download Lionrock Life app and use discount code courage to get over 70 meetings a week of support at all hours of the day and night for one month free. That's 70. That's a lot. That's That's a whole lot. lot. That's a lot. All right. You've been warned. It's that time. Oh boy. Dad joke of the episode. Cause that's my contribution to the world, right? (laughs) As a dad, I don't have a lot more to offer other than this so that's here we sorry. go here sorry. we go i'm holding on i'm holding on this one i'm not even gonna let you participate i'm just gonna do the joke you ready okay. and i feel okay. like it, it has a voice i feel like it has a voice that goes along with it you ready okay i'm ready <clears throat> i bought some shoes from a drug dealer i don't know who what he laced them with but i was tripping all day <laughs> you guys i think we have to, oh my gosh you guys i literally i have like like in my stomach, I have nausea, like feelings of just, <laughs> oh, you guys, these jokes. <sighs> I got to breathe through them, you know? I got to breathe through them. I don't know. Mo- maybe most people don't have this reaction to to like dad jokes, but they like, it's like a gut punch. That's why we do it. It's just keep yeah. you on your toes. You no, know? I appreciate it. Cause like a dirty joke I would think is funny and it would be totally comfortable for me. I'm totally comfortable with like nasty, dirty, whatever, but give me a dad joke. And I am like a third grader who just heard the word <laughs> penis. <laughs> <laughs>
She's visit. She's visibly flushed. I'm, I'm. I am. I'm. I'm verklempt. Anyway, but for this week, we're rooting for you. We hope that it's great and it's all green lights. That's what I'd say. Yeah. All right. We'll see you soon. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.